welcome to Sparks of History. We are extremely honored to have with us today Reverend Johnny Moore. Reverend Moore is a highly accomplished evangelical leader and successful businessman, having founded the Kairos Company, a public relations firm. Reverend Moore is a commissioner for the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom and president of the Congress of Christian Leaders. Reverend Moore has authored numerous books, including What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? The Martyr's Oath, 10 Things You Must Know About the Global War on Christianity, Defying ISIS, Preserving Christianity in the Place of Its Birth and in Your Own Backyard, and Dirty God. Reverend Moore, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Um, just to get started, what are some of the multi-faith endeavors um, that you and your organizations have undertaken over the years? And how has the October 7th massacre impacted on those efforts? Well, I, uh, part of it goes to my own history uh, with, with the Middle East. My father lived in Saudi Arabia uh, when I was a child, so he, he uh, was a... Uh, a typical American expatriate recruited to work for the Ford Motor Company, and uh, he would he would come back uh, from from working in the region for a couple of months, home for a couple of weeks, and he would bring me things <laughs> as a little kid, and and it sparked my uh, my fascination in that part of the world. And and like most uh, most evangelicals, I grew up in a church that um, spoke uh, well about the Jewish people, about the state of Israel. I was in the deep South in South Carolina. I'm not aware I even ever met uh, someone who was Jewish until I was an adult, but it was like built, built inside of me. And so I had these two sort of identities, my father uh, in the Arab world uh, working in Saudi Arabia. And as a young evangelical, um, you know, I, 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 I loved Israel. I couldn't say why I didn't quite understand it entirely, but it was, it was built, it was built inside of me. So as soon as I was an adult, I started traveling to the Middle East and to, to all of those countries. And I, I was at a university. I led students to uh, to Israel. Um, fast forward a few years uh, later, uh, ISIS is ravaging Iraq and Syria. Uh, they're putting um, the Arabic uh, in on the homes of Christians. Uh, they're selling children on open slave markets. They're um, uh, trying to eliminate um, the, the 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 Christian community, the Yazidis, and everyone else that stands in their way, uh, and I I decided to work on rescuing people, and you know, I, I I did a, a a lot of stuff, you know, to try to um, get people out of the country and get people in a safe place uh, in Iraq and help help churches in Syria, Christians, and all of those places, including evangelicals, um, and. Uh, you know, with some success, we were able to save uh, a lot of lives. And there was a certain point where after all of that, um, and ISIS was sort of in its decline, and we had helped uh, a, a few tens of thousands of people, and, and the chaos was uh, moving to another chapter, that I decided I wanted to work on the positive side of it, too. So how do we keep these things from happening again? Um, how do we have um, uh, combat uh, violations of religious freedom, the persecution of Christians, combat anti-Semitism? by making sure that Jews and Christians and Muslims actually know know one another. And so I started working on the proactive side. And I, as I've always uh, done, I'm, I, I believe in the people-to-people -people relationship. So I just started going to the region and 
Uh, I would get invitations to visit. I would visit and meet more people. And these concentric circles of relationships uh, began to began to expand. And there's some very, very uh, interesting stories in there and some specific achievements that I, I, if you want to know, I can tell you. But um, but that that's really the big the big picture. It's part of my lifelong story. I worked on helping people who are being killed by terrorists. And then I started asking myself, how do we create an environment where this is less likely to happen? Uh, and then the people to people relationships uh, were were my uh, my way of doing it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe an example or two of of some of the um, endeavors that you're maybe most proud of or most you know were accomplished. What you think is 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 the most the most good or, or whatever is in the past or even ongoing. Yeah, I mean, there's so much ongoing, but you know, I, I was the first uh, uh, public Christian to uh, visit uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, to be officially welcomed after the Vision 2030 reforms. Uh, I was the first uh, evangelical to meet with the religious police in Saudi Arabia after they were, um, after they were reformed. Uh, I, um, lot, lots of firsts, you know, the, 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 uh, I was a part of a delegation that, that's, um, delegations that, that's, uh, spent hours with President Sisi and, uh, NBZ and King Hamad. Uh, probably what I'm most most proud of in all of that was um, uh, about two years before the Abraham Accords, um, uh, we were apart uh, with with the uh, with the Simon Wiesenthal Center, um, sort of the Jewish side and, and, and we on the Christian side of leading a peace delegation uh, of Bahrainis uh, to Jerusalem. Um, Two years before the accords, and it was a uh, it, it was an amazing series of events. It it, it happened uh, because um, uh, there was an, an environment, uh, largely for security reasons, that were introducing different groups to one another. Um, uh, Bahrain, which is this incredibly <laughs> pluralistic island with a continuous Christian presence for 2,000 years, and the only Hindu temple and in, in, uh, in the Middle East until uh, the day after tomorrow, <laughs> as we're talking now, when the United Arab Emirates Abu Dhabi opens a Hindu temple. Um, but the UAE, you know, hundreds of Coptic Christians would travel from Saudi every weekend to worship at churches in the UAE, and the Catholic Church was overflowing, the Evangelical Church was overflowing, the first hospital. Um, in Bahrain was in, started by evangelicals. You know, it, it's a uh, Bahrain is like this amazing, amazing pluralistic country, and um, you know, B Bahrain wanted to make a statement uh, that this mattered, and so we worked with um, civil society, with an NGO in Bahrain to to um, collaborate with the king on creating something called the King Hamad um, Declaration for Peaceful Coexistence. It was the first religious freedom document ever authored under the patronage of a king in the Middle East, a Muslim king, nonetheless. Um, and we launched that in Los Angeles at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And then afterwards, uh, we, we, the king's son was there and, and we were talking. We said, if we're serious about this, the next time we meet, we'll meet in Jerusalem. And, uh, and sure enough, we got word um, that uh, the, the king was willing uh, to let um, uh, these religious leaders travel from Bahrain to Jerusalem we got in touch with the Israelis. They were willing to welcome them, and uh, and we and we welcomed them in Jerusalem. And it wasn't an easy time. It was it was exactly everyone arrived on the third day of rage after um, the former president announced 
the moving of the U.S. Embassy to to Jerusalem. So this was not this was not a time where things were, uh, uh, you know, in the, the status quo. This was the single biggest earthquake uh, in a long period of time uh, to, to the region by the United States. Honestly, I thought the Bahrainis would, would consider postponing the trip. So much so I canceled my plane ticket. I was just so sure of it. And then I got word that they were coming anyhow. And so I had booked another plane ticket and I met um, a Bahraini peace delegation in Jerusalem three days after the United States announced the moving of the embassy to, to, to Jerusalem. And that delegation met countless Israelis. Um, they were able to go, uh, the Muslims were able to go pray in the mosque um and it in my my opinion uh was uh, a little known um part of history um that uh, was quite a consequential consequential moment because it's one thing to do all this stuff in private um but when you are when you're walking down the streets uh with citizens from a country without normalization and religion was what brought everyone together um I, I'll, I'll always be always be very uh, you know I'm very, very proud to have been an eyewitness uh, to that. And and it just shows like uh, many times people are willing to do things if you just ask them and if trust exists. You know, the most valuable commodity in the Middle East, uh, particularly in the Gulf, is not oil or gas. Uh, it's trust. There's no business without trust. There's nothing without without trust. And um, for, for lots of reasons, over a period of time, trust had been built with Bahrain and it, and it produced a tiny little country connected by a bridge to Saudi Arabia was willing to defy the entire world, sending a peace delegation three days after um, after uh, the announcement of the move of the of of the embassy. And I, I almost can't think of a more righteous action. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I think you may have answered this in part. Um, there's sometimes a sense um, that uh, there's a refrain that says. Um, leaders, uh, people of of influence, are are more moderate than than they appear in public or what they can publicly say. Uh, that, so, what needs to be done? Let's say, just from the perspective of moderate Muslim leaders, what needs to be done so that they could feel freer to speak out and be heard in in these multi faith. Um, endeavors of reconciliation. Well, first of all, the word you just used is the most important word. Uh, it's the word multi. You actually, used two words. That I think are the most important words. Uh, the one word is multi-faith. You know, I, I always say that I don't do interfaith work. I do multi-faith work because interfaith really doesn't. I mean, I, I don't judge those who use the term. I, people use it with different meanings, but but for my you know, the, the the conventional wisdom when it comes to interfaith work is that you have to lay down your sincerely held religious beliefs in order to find a common ground. And I just don't think that gets us very far. I, I, I think we have to have people who know that they don't have to lay down their sincerely held religious beliefs and their their cultural, religious, whatever identities, and yet we can still collaborate together. So I, 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 I prefer the term uh, multi-faith. Uh, and I and I often uh, talk about an evangelical concept called co-belligerency um, that was uh, uh, popularized by um, by a, a theologian named Francis Schaeffer, who got it from a uh, another theologian whose name was Carl Henry, who founded uh, Christianity Today, uh, is one of the founders of the founding editor of Christianity Today. And co-belligerency is this idea of we can disagree on everything, 
but if we agree on this one thing, we can work together. And there are limits to all of that and there are levels of complexity. But I, I think the first thing is, is, is um, these are uh, um, societies with, with uh, sincerely held religious beliefs in some circumstances, but certainly cultural norms, you know, that have to be, that have to be respected, cultural norms about honor, respect and shame and, you know, all of these things as well. And I, I think very, very often in the West, I, I, would, I would say habitually um, in the in the in the State Department, uh, people think that because they are multilingual, that somehow they understand culture. And I, I think that's um, that that's a uh, I think you can uh, not be multilingual and you can understand um, culture when it comes to things like honor and shame um, and strength and respect and the, you know <laughs> these things. So uh, the multi-faith part, and the second one, which is sort of leads to it, is leadership. I mean, that when it's all said and done, um, people can make peace with their peers across divides, but it takes leaders to make the decisions. You know, I always say people to people peace is a prerequisite for government to government peace that sustains, but ultimately the governments have to make decisions. And I think I think when it's all said and done, it really comes down to leadership. It, it comes down to Anwar Sadat getting on an airplane and going to the, um, you know, to the uh, to the to the Knesset, and it comes down to um, Golda Meir uh, joking with him in that famous press conference afterwards, um, uh, when, in, in, as she gave him a gift um, for uh, for for the birth of of, of his uh, grand, grandchild. It's these were two strong leaders who fought an incredible war um, and they would have fought to the last, you know, to the, to the end of it. And yet um, those same strong leaders, I, I always say it takes hawks to make peace. Doves don't make peace. It takes it takes leadership. And and sometimes an individual can be a globally influential leader. You know, you just have to. um do what other people haven't done done before and don't don't believe all the lies but i i think um you know when it's all said and done uh, it, it it leaders uh, some, sometimes leaders overestimate the risk of taking actions and they underestimate the risk of not taking action and i think that has been the story of of the challenges in the middle east uh, people are so worried about the risks of doing what they in their heart of hearts know is the rational thing to do. And in the end, uh, they actually realized those very, those, those very risks. And um, so far, I can't think of a single example where um, strong principle leaders took um, uh, sort of morally centered correct actions based upon common sense uh, that, that weren't enduring um, I can't think of plenty of examples where people were were um, trying to play the middle and make everyone happy and and uh, take no position on anything uh, where the stronger people took a took a took a position, you know, and, and religion is a big part of that. You know, re religion is often the X factor uh, in all of these circumstances. There's in failed states, religious leaders are often the only people with any moral authority whatsoever. Um, the some of the worst actors in history have figured out that they can weaponize religion to suspend all rationality. Um, and uh, when when religion is baked into the cake, um, it can be a blessing when when the religious factors are discounted, neglected, avoided, um, they more often than not can be uh, can be a curse. And so I, I think I think it, it takes um, when people to people relationships, leaders, 
Um, and, and people have to know they can be who they are, you know, as opposed to changing who they are, what they believe. Shifting just a little bit from the, from the Middle East to, um, to the United States, what is your take, Reverend Moore, on, on what appears to be an alarming rise of anti-Semitism, especially on certain college campuses? Um, what can be done? What should be done to combat this? Uh, everything should be done. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I, this is not a time in history where you um, where you hedge your where you hedge your bets. This is a time in history when you make make principled decisions. I mean, I, I the, the what happened at the universities is just absolutely astonishing on the one hand, but absolutely obvious on the other hand. Everyone was watching this slow creep take place, uh, but but people were unwilling to. Uh, to recognize it for what for what it was, and I I think you know I spent the uh, beginning of my career um, in my uh, uh, in higher education. I spent a lot of time uh, interacting with universities even even till now, and I can tell you universities um, uh, can can change, but it takes like it takes strong boards, appointing strong uh, you know appointing strong presidents. Uh, who who are who they will not fire when they have to do the hard and controversial controversial things and so far that's not what that's not what's happening and on the contrast what happened is is a lot of bad actors all around the world through through um uh, through transparent means and through subversive means uh, realized that the easiest way to get to the hearts of of american democracy and american power was through the next generation you know it's it's a lesson as religious people we know like if you don't pass the faith to the next generation, um, then they, they won't know the, the, the faith of the, the fathers, the grandfathers, the, the, it'll all, it'll all go, it'll all go away over time. And worse is that middle ground where, where there's still a, a religious culture, but there aren't any principles. And then you cause chaos, you know, in every, in every direction. And, uh, and unfortunately what happens here, I think, um, is, is ideology was passed down. Uh, through through uh, transparent and through subversive means to a whole generation of elite leaders that uh, occupy our institutions, um, and we should have learned the lessons of history now. And the only way out of it um, is to is to is to recognize it all for what it is. And you know, it's sort of this weird thing between the evangelical community um, and the Jewish community around uh, around the world and in the United States because what what's sort of what's sort of interesting. Here in the U.S., as evangelicals um, are are uh, are often um, staunch supporters of Israel, uh, staunch uh, advocates for the Jewish community, they feel good about the Jewish community. But many evangelicals are just learning the term anti-Semitism. It's it's unbelievable. They're not <laughs> they. It's not a term. I don't I don't recall ever hearing the term. I knew people uh, I knew about the Holocaust. I knew that um, people irrationally hated hated the Jewish community, but it's not a vocabulary word I grew up with in the evangelical community. And yet, of course, as an adult, you know, <laughs> I know plenty of things about anti-Semitism, but I think it's a reflection of the lack of a relationship between the Jewish community and the evangelical community in the, in the United States. Like we should be learning as evangelicals the Christian history of anti-Semitism through our Jewish uh, neighbors, they, they should be teaching us. And evangelicals are generally mortified when they learn about those things. Um, but it seems in the United States, um, the Jewish community, the evangelical community have sort of been on this parallel um, parallel path and they don't really know each other. 
uh, except when there when there are sort of concentric political circles that occasionally that occasionally inter intersect. Since October seventh, I would say that has been changing. I I, I think um, what what's happening is you know probably probably ten percent of the rally in Washington D.C. Um, uh, the largest such gathering ever were were evangelical Christians. In all of these micro rallies to support the Jewish community in the United States, there have been evangelical evangelical Christians. The largest churches uh, in America um, have been hosting family members of those held by hostages. Um, I led a rally in Geneva uh, out, outside of the Red Cross, uh, t- you know, two weeks after October seventh. The crowd was entirely. Um, uh, you know, 90% Christian, but the lo- local Jewish community came, but it was a Christian rally in support of, of the, I spoke at the EU parliament, um, on October 9th or 11th. And, and that was an event organized by Christian friends of, of Israel, um, there. And so I, I think, I think we have this in the United States. It's not so the case, by the way. I think in, in Europe, Latin America and Africa. Um, the Jewish community and the Christian community tends to know one another better, um, less so in Europe, certainly in, in, in South America and, 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 and where it exists in Africa. But in the United States, we've had this parallel parallel path. And I, and I think uh, since October 7th, that's changing. We have to continue to change it. And I, and I think my dear, my, my dear Jewish friends need to remember that um, when Theodor Herzl uh, gathered the first Zionist World Conference, I mean, he had in Basel, Switzerland, as his personal guests, a, a, a 10 or 12 Christian friends. The term Christian Zionist was not invented by Christians. It was invented by Theodore Herzl to try to describe people like Heckler and Donat, you know, who were his evangelical Christian friends who supported the Zionist, Zionist cause. Donat, for goodness sakes, was the founder of the Red Cross, the recipient of two Nobel Prizes. He was a Christian Zionists, like somehow we have been in this journey from the very, very beginning, and um, yet we have a lot to learn about uh, our own our own Christian history when it comes to anti-Semitism. But I also think, um, you know, with with due respect to all my Jewish friends, um, and and I, I I probably have more Jewish friends than Christian friends uh, the, the, these days. The the Jewish uh, community has. Um, uh, uh, has um uh, well let me say it this way a month ago i sat in the home of uh of the president of israel uh, president herzog right. uh, just me and him and um and i said uh it may feel like 1938 but it isn't 1938 at least for one reason and that is there are 700 million of us around the world and we're not always good at articulating it we, we may you know we may disagree on all kinds of other things last i checked the jewish community has no problem disagreeing with each other so so you know this is okay um we have a lot to learn from one another but we intend on building a christian firewall around the jewish community all around the world wherever they are and the jewish community the state of israel is strong you probably don't need us but we're going to make sure that if they're going to try to get to you, they got to get through us first. And, and I think that is something that's different. Um, that's different now, you know, and, and in history, I mean, there were uh, Maimonides, right. I mean, he said it was okay to study the Bible with Christians, 
you know, you couldn't go into a church, you know, but it was okay to study the Bible uh, with, with Christians. And, and I think um, one of the things I found is when I can get Christians studying the Hebrew Bible together with the Jewish community, um, it unlocks so many things in the Christian heart, things that uh, we didn't learn in our churches and seminary because we don't speak Hebrew. And, and there were selected decisions made about translation. Um, and there's just so much that's also exciting about this, about this terrible, um, terrible moment. Well, what's next on, on the horizon? It, it sounds, you know, I, I often ask guests, are you optimistic, pessimistic, or somewhere in between? Uh, you strike Reverend Moore a, a very optimistic note, which is which is wonderful. I mean, it's just it's it's inspirational, and you know, it gives us strength here in Israel when we hear this. Um, what's next on the horizon? Where, where where do you see things going? If you look into your crystal ball um, after the conclusion, hopefully successful conclusion of of the of this war. Well, I think first of all, as people of faith, um, we have to really, we have to really pray. I mean, we are in a perilous moment in in history. I mean, you can draw the line of coups across the center of Africa. No one's talking about 17 million people, you know, displaced in Sudan. Uh, we have a, in effect, a piecemeal caliphate forming in the West of Africa. Um, we have uh, um, great power competition. Um, with I, I, I would say a uh, with sometimes less rational actors with much more dangerous technology, you know we have wars in multiple parts of the world. Like we are not in a from a global perspective. Um, this is this is this can go either way. And and you know I I think um, we ought to be leading our um, our congregations, people of faith all around the world ought to be playing, praying very very intensely for God to bless us with leaders around the world and uh, to protect us from ourselves and uh, to, to make sure that, that uh, we're not forced to repeat the lessons of history uh, because we, we are at a very, very perilous, perilous place um, right now. And the status quo among so many of the elites in the world seems to be that um, you can buy off evil in various ways. Um, and it makes sense if you're, if you don't believe in good and evil, you know, so you're always, making deals. Um, but if you do believe in good and evil, you know, you do believe that there's certain, certain things that are evil and certain people can do evil things. And, 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 and this is the, this is um, a prerequisite for any moral clarity whatsoever. And what October 7th demands is moral clarity. What this moment of history demands is moral clarity. Um, and, and we should have moral clarity in droves because we're a very religious world. Um, unfortunately, uh, our, our, um, uh, you know, our, our status quo seems to have been built for a previous time. And there are a lot of people fighting a previous generation's wars. And so we have to, we have to really, really, um, be, be prayerful in terms of what's next. Um, I am an, I am an optimist. I have to be, uh, but I, I do believe, um, aside from the fact that Israel will, uh, decidedly win this war, um, and Israel will be further respected in a region uh, that requires um, respect for coexistence. Uh, and that's a comp there are all kinds of complexities there. Um, I think Israel needs to do a, um, a, a better job of reminding the broader the broader Arab world 
um, that uh, the majority of, of aside from 20% of Israel being non-Israeli, the majority of the Jews in Israel come from, um, uh, uh, from uh, you know, in, to some degree from Arab countries. They were, you know, 800,000 people exiled and they, you know, this is, this is why when, when, uh, uh, when I, when I sit with Yemenite Jewish friends or Iraqi Jewish friends, some Moroccans, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in the Middle East. There's so many cultural connections. The internet doesn't allow the bad guys to separate people as they used to, right? You information is everywhere. Um, but what comes next is Israel wins. Israel must win as quickly as possible, but Israel must not be rushed. And when Israel wins as quickly as possible, even though it's not being rushed, um, then uh, I, I think um, I, I absolutely believe that the the winds of peace are still blowing in the right direction. I do believe um, there will be uh, uh, normalization um, uh, with with the Saudis. I absolutely believe that um, that the Arab countries in the region will be uh, partners um, in problem solving. Um, uh, it, it, which, by the way, didn't didn't exist before October seventh to the same to the same degree because I think people thought the situation was more stable than it was. I think everybody did, and but post October seventh, um, you you in, the post October seventh reality requires um, requires certain problems to be solved, and I and I think that um, that there's greater trust now between uh, whether that's public or private. Uh, between the Israelis and between Arab countries. Um, and that is also demonstrated by the patience Israel is having with some of the um, uh, less patient statements coming from their Arab neighbors. But I think there's a lot, there's a lot else that's going on uh, in that. And one thing is sure, <laughs> um, uh, the, the people of Israel will live. Israel will continue to thrive in the Middle East. And all of those countries, when they become one integrated whole, uh, will be a um, uh, not only an economy to be reckoned with that rivals uh, Europe, um, but it will be uh, uh, it, it will be um, something from from much 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 celebration. History tells us, in the aftermath of most of these existential moments, we actually generally have the needle of peace and security moved in a positive direction. And so um, it's a matter of whether leaders are willing to lead. You know, we'll see. Okay. Reverend Moore, thank you so much. This has been uh, inspirational, fascinating, and um, you should continue to go from strength to strength in, in all of your efforts and all of your endeavors. Thank you thank so you. much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ari.